This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. I don't need to say anything we just sit here bathing in Amitabha's pure love <laughs> anyway I have prepared a bit of a talk so uh, I will say something anyway firstly um, yeah great to be here uh, Tara Dassel asked me a long time ago uh, if I would give a talk and it was trying to find a date wasn't it um, and uh, anyway it seemed way 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 in the future at the point when he asked me and uh, here it is um I have to say that um, Amitabha is not um, the particular Buddha that I meditate upon, but I do have quite strong associations, but I'll say, talk about those later on during the talk. So, um, yes, first of all, I sort of just want to set the mood a bit. Um, so I'd like each one of us in this room just to recall a particular time, just the first one that comes to your mind, um, when you're watching the setting sun. It could be an urban place, it could be a tropical island, it could be here in Cambridge, and you're just watching the redness of the sun, the evening setting sun, the day's work has been done, and you're watching this deep red ball of fire. And maybe if you're here in Cambridge and seeing this sunset, maybe you're walking along and you're just stopped in your tracks. Other people are busying back and forth. People are looking down at their iPhones and things. They're not looking at the sun, but suddenly you are caught by the gaze. You're in your gaze. The sun is there. And it brings calmness and stillness in that moment. And you take the time, you actually take the time to stop and stare. And the orb of the sun is poised on the distant horizon and it's massive. And wisps of clouds are tinged by pink and red and orange and gold. So you can just keep that memory there while I give the rest of my talk. For me, sunsets, I'm going to start with sunsets. Um, uh, Well, I have many memories of many, many, many sunsets, but I think ones that come again and again to me are those that I see at Akashavana. So Jaya, when she introduced me, talked about me uh, going to Akashavana. Um, and being part of the long three-month for women ordination retreats there. And um, it's a wonderful place to watch the sun going down. Uh, In the evening, we often have, most evenings, we have pujas of some sort in our shrine room there. And our shrine room is usually candlelit. And the shrine room room faces west at Akashavana. 
and it has these tall windows that are almost ceiling to floor looking out over, uh, towards the west um, so we may be doing a sevenfold puja and we come to the final mantras and maybe you know one's eyes are closed while you're chanting the mantras and then you come to the shanti 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 and you open your eyes and the shrine room can be bathed absolutely bathed in shafts of red light red light or gold light that fill the whole shrine room and time and time again I've seen with myself and I've seen with other people they sort of open their eyes and they go wow because it may not have been like that sort of 15 minutes beforehand <clears throat> so the last bells are rung in the shrine room and one by one we leave the shrine room and it's a bit of a walk um, along a narrow path from the shrine room back to the actual retreat center and it's a gorgeous walk um, and I must have done that hundreds of times that walk and it takes sort of three or four minutes to get from shrine room back to the retreat center um, and we walk in silence along the path always um, and it's only narrow so you can only walk one by one and uh, quite often you know that sun is still there when you get sort of in front of the actual retreat centre and people just stop there they don't go straight inside you can't possibly go straight inside when you see the sunsets there um, <clears throat> And people are sitting, you know, if, if I'm one of the last people maybe to come out, people are perched on a rock or on a plank of wood or just sort of standing and staring into the distance. Um, in a way, everybody is absorbed in the grandeur of the setting sun, in the light, in the beauty, in the warmth of that setting sun. And I often feel that we, we, these little women, <laughs> these humans, we're just specks of dust almost in this vast universe by comparison. And then the sun sinks down and it sinks down sort of behind some hills. <clears throat> and it's at that moment actually that the whole sky lights up. And uh, it's as though the sort of artists at that moment come out with their palettes and uh, the whole sky um, becomes reds and oranges and golds and yellows and pinks um, and the light gets stronger and stronger so as the sun has gone right down the, sun, the, the sky just becomes this absolute sort of a maze of colour <clears throat> I can see people who've been there smiling they know it well <clears throat> and behind us we have this tall rock which is called Penaroy rock which actually means red rock and it is red a lot of the colour of the stone is red and with the sun shining onto that that just becomes a copper coloured mountain and the sky the rest of the sky as the colours gradually fade turns a deep dark turquoise until eventually darkness descends and the night sky is aglow with stars so we've all got our own images of sunsets those are mine and they happen again and again and they are pretty breathtaking <clears throat> and sometimes I'll think I'll see one of these beautiful sunsets and I'll think I could never see a more perfect sunset and yet tomorrow another perfect sunset different comes again and another one and next week there's yet another one 
next retreat there are more next year there will be more um, it's, it's as though these well these sunsets have been going on they've started from beginningless time and they will continue until the world's end and we those of us living up at Akashavana have only had those, those properties for about 10 years so we're just specks of dust in this moment of time and so it's with those those kind of images of the setting sun um, that we are brought into Amitabha's realm Amitabha the Buddha of infinite light and infinite love and compassion so Amitabha sits in the western quarter of the mandala of the five Buddhas deep red just like the setting sun I just want to say a few words a very few words about how the archetypes developed (coughs) this may have already been done in previous talks but it's just a reminder um, anyway that that, um, Buddhism started with the historical man he who Siddhartha Gautama he who became Buddha he who became awakened who gained enlightenment and he went on to teach Um, and all this was a long time ago 2500 years ago but he is the Buddha, our Buddha Shakyamuni Buddha but after his death (coughs) um, disciples of the Buddha gradually developed more visionary ways of connecting with Shakyamuni And these visionary ways began to kind of develop more through people's meditation practice and through their meditation experiences. So as the Mahayana and later the Vajrayana developed, there was an increasing emphasis put on the archetypal, the beauty that captivates. So it's through people's meditation practice and meditation on the archetypal, more and more forms began to appear. And these forms were kind of made out of, if you can quite, even the language sort of breaks down, but they're made out of color, they're made out of light and beauty. They're illumined images. And some of these illumined images just became more constant, more integrated with the ultimate truth of things. Each image is an expression of the vitality of the Dharma. And as people, Buddhists, dwelt on and reflected on the qualities of Shakyamuni, his wisdom, all the various qualities, his wisdom, his compassion, his generosity, his beauty, skillful action, and so on. So the mandala of the five Buddhas was created. Very alive, very alive, I think, for many of us today these sort of bursts of colour and light and energy Um, I think somewhere Bhante talks about them as sort of condensations of light and energy Um, um, and of truth so each Buddha and I know you've already heard um, you had talks on um, Akshobhya and uh, Ratnasambhava 
So each Buddha has very particular qualities, very particular color, a particular gesture and wisdom and so on. They are all aspects of the same experience of enlightenment. They're just sort of like different doorways or different gateways in. They're seen from a different point of view. They're seeing the truth from different points of view. So, each of the five Buddhas um, is, becomes, sort of, at some point, I don't know how this happens, anyway, becomes the head of a family. Um, so, over time, each Buddha becomes the head of a family of other bodhisattvas, other archetypal bodhisattvas. So you've already heard about, and I haven't actually heard this talk, but you've already heard about Akshobhya in the Eastern Quarter, the Deep Blue Buddha. So he is head of the Vajra family because he holds the Vajra sort of poised in one hand. And um, say one of the um, other bodhisattvas that's part of his family, the Vajra family, is Vajrapani. Um, who I'm sure we're all aware of, Vajrapani, both in peaceful and wrathful forms. And then in the southern quarter, uh, Ratnagosha, I believe, gave the talk on Ratnasambhava. Um, so in the south, we have the golden Buddha of Ratnasambhava, golden yellow in color, and he is the head of the jewel-born family, the Ratna jewel-born family. And now we come to the Western Quarter, um, and we have Amitabha, and he is the head of the Lotus family, or the Padma, Padma family. Um, and other um, bodhisattvas within the Padma family are Avalokiteshvara, Antara, and Padmasambhava. Now, as I said, um, you know, Amitabha is not a figure that I particularly meditate upon, but at the time of my ordination, I was given the visualization practice of Green Tara um, by Bhante, and actually Amitabha is in the head of, um, in the crown, she, he sits in her top knot, um, Amitabha sits in the top knot of um, Green Tara. Um, and of course, I was given the name um, Padma Shuri, so you know I've got Lotus in my um, in my name. And I remember to this day distinctly what Bhante said about the Padma aspect of my name. Um, so he was sort of saying how the Padma means the Lotus, of course, and as we know, the gro- Lotus sort of grows out of the mud. Um, and it comes up and it comes above the water and then, then it grows, its stem grows right out of the water to open up. And um, he talked, Bhante talked this about, about um, the lotus as being about spiritual receptivity. So it's the unfurling lotus, the spiritual receptivity. Um, and he also said at my ordination things which I still sort of wonder about um, because he sort of said, so this is my name, you know, Padma Shuri. The Shuri bit, by the way, means um, heroine. So he called me the lotus-like heroine. Um, and he talked about those as being slightly um, different qualities coming together in the one name, the heroine being the more outgoing, pioneering side and the lotus being the more um, softer and gentle receptive side so those coming together Um, but he also talked about my name I was living around the London Buddhist Centre at that time and there's um, a large Amitabha on the central shrine there 
And uh, so Bantu said, ah, yes, and then we have Amitabha, you know, whose emblem is the lotus on the shrine there. And then we also have Padmasambhava, and he just left it like that. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's all part of the Padma family. Um, so, Amitabha's colour is a deep, rich, a ruby red. We've got this beautiful, beautiful red shrine here, which I think very much sort of evokes that redness of things. And I know such quite a few people are wearing red. I don't know whether it's coincidence or whether it's um, purposeful, but it's nice to see a lot of red. And I definitely thought, yes, I'm going to wear red. Uh, so red is very much a colour that draws, that attracts, that fascinates. It's the colour of love. It's the colour of blood, blood being the life force. It's the colour of emotion. It's the colour of blushing. It's also the colour of other emotions like rage. We talk about being red with rage, with passion. And it's the colour of warmth, of light and of love. So Amitabha is the Buddha of infinite light, love and compassion. His whole body is made out of red light. As with all the other Buddhas that you've already heard about, um, they're actually made of light. So although they have these sort of deep colours, they are light. Um, so when visualising um, sort of a Buddha or Bodhisattva, it's quite important to get the sense of these lights, of these sort of rainbow-coloured lights. They're not hard, dense flesh, flesh and blood, so to speak. And I think if I think of paintings, I think it's for me it's a bit more like a Botticelli painting than a Rembrandt. You know, Rembrandts are sort of hard, and I mean they're fabulous paintings, but they're you know they're oil colours and things, and they're quite dense, even though you can have the light coming through. Whereas the Botticelli is a little bit more sort of ethereal than that. You get the different um, light coming through the colours. Um, so the, these Buddhas are not reproductions of our sense or sensuous world. They're much more subtle than that. So Amitabha sits on a vast red lotus. I think with all the Buddhas, if we're trying to visualize them or just sort of imagining them here, even as I'm talking, sort of don't just think of a little image of Amitabha. Nice though it is. You know, imagine Amitabha taking up this whole room, sitting on top, in fact, of the Cambridge Buddhist Center. Um, so he sits on the vast red lotus, and his emblem is the lotus the unfurling lotus, the lotus of spiritual receptivity. And on top of the white lotus, there is a disc, a white moon disc. And on top of that is the body of Amitabha, in full meditation posture, in dhyana mudra. So his hands are one on top of the other. Um... The mudras or the gestures, I think of, you know, each one, there's so much one could say about it. And, you know, you've already gone sort of, this is the third point around the mandala. So you've already had Akshobhya with the Bhumi Sparsha, the earth-touching mudra. And um, something actually, somebody was just telling me about this the other day, was sort of, you could think of the gestures a bit as you go around the mandala, starting with the eastern quarter with Akshobhya, of the earth-touching mudra, and then you go to Ratnasambhava and you just gently turn the hand over into the gesture of giving, the dana mudra, and now you come to the meditation mudra, just sort of coming inwards. 
and um, you know next the next talk is um, we'll be going into the fearless mudra but we just stop at this point um, so he's in full meditation posture and that speaks of stillness and of peace and he has a gentle smile and he's clothed in rich red robes which are supposed uh, are edged with rainbows and he has an aura of green light and until I went to Akashavana I always I never quite got the kind of green light but actually when you see when you see again and again the setting suns um, when they're that red color there is nearly always a slightly green tinged sky around it so that's why I suppose he has um, the green aura um, yes and he sits on a throne like the other Buddhas um, which I'm sure you heard about and Amitabha's throne um, is held up by peacocks um, now apparently peacocks eat poisonous snakes I don't know if this is true <laughs> I presume it maybe it is um, I don't know enough I don't like snakes and I love peacocks so well, well, you know the beauty of the peacock so um, you know that's interesting um, <clears throat> and um, apparently the peacock can eat snake and swallow the poison and be unharmed by the poison and it's said that the um, poison is transformed into the beautiful eyes on the peacock's tail in the feathers so it has that sort of transforming quality so the powers of Amitabha's love and compassion are very very great and even our mundane unskillfulnesses our jealousies our hatreds our little irritating peccadilloes you know one of mine is irritability can be transformed by the practice of the Dharma and especially by the practice of developing metta and love and compassion and I'm going to say more about metta um, a bit later on so each Buddha is associated with a particular sort of poison um, and Amitabha's poison is that of greed and uh, you know with greed with grasping with attachment um, you know it's, it's sort of we can be quite hard on ourselves sometimes I shouldn't be feeling this or I shouldn't be doing that but that's not the way it seems as though Amitabha works rather he draws us towards something higher so when there's emotion there even if the emotion if the emotion is a little bit sort of tinged with things that aren't quite so skillful that can be transformed into something much higher so we're sort of transformed into um, well a desire rather than sort of worldly desires we can be um, taken up lifted up into more spiritual desires lifted up into something beyond beyond ourselves beyond worldly desires to the desire of truth in the mandala of the five Buddhas um, Amitabha sits opposite Akshobhya so you have them east and west um, and while Akshobhya holds or sometimes wields the Vajra to get through to the truth um, in a very sort of dynamic and breaking through obstacles kind of way Amitabha's path is more one 
of longing desire, longing for, is Amitabha's path is more one of a longing desire and an attraction for enlightenment. So it's much more organic. It's this sort of longing, wanting to go towards, so that sort of um, attraction and desire, which can go into sort of worldly things, can actually be transmuted into something much more spiritual. Um, we have that spiritual potential. So it's very different, these sort of opposites from Akshobhya to Amitabha. One sort of wielding, cutting through more, and Amitabha more being drawn upwards. And you've probably heard about the wisdoms of the other Buddhas. Um, Amitabha's wisdom is the discriminating wisdom, or sometimes called the all-distinguishing wisdom. So with Akshobhya, you had the mirror-like wisdom. So the mirror-like wisdom, seeing things as they really are, objectivity, no distortion. It's like sort of looking into a clear pool of water. So that's Akshobhya. And then Ratnasambhava has the wisdom of equality and he sees the essential unity of things. And I, I know that Ratnagosha talked about that in his talk. Amitabha sort of comes in at a different angle yet again. So he has this discriminating wisdom. He sees things in their uniqueness and in their diversity. It's sort of interesting, I was actually sort of, I, ha- I had to look this up because I wasn't really very clear on this and I was looking up, well in, in two sources, I mean, which um, I'm sure you're probably all certainly familiar with, the Sanchara's book, um, Meeting the Buddhas, which is a very good sort of source for this. But also I do find Lama Govinda very good um, in his um, uh, Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. He talks sort of quite a lot about the wisdoms. He talks a lot about the five Buddhas and their wisdoms. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, so Amitabha's wisdom contains all the... Well, each, each of their wisdoms actually contains all the other wisdoms. So in Amitabha's wisdom, there's both the objectivity of the mirror-like wisdom and the essential unity within Amitabha's discriminating wisdom. And I could only think of the sort of discriminating wisdom being a bit like the parable of the rain cloud. Um, it, it, the rain cloud, so it talks about the Buddha sort of pouring down the rain onto the world. It's like the Dharma is being poured down onto the world, and poured down onto the trees and the bushes. And every tree and every bush and every flower grows in its own unique way. And that sort of strikes me as something like, possibly, Amitabha's um, wisdom. He allows things or people for us to grow in our own unique way. Um, so I sort of like those as the opposites of each other. The Akshobhya's, um, sorry, uh, yes, the Ratnasambhava's equ- uh, wisdom of equality and Amitabha's discriminating wisdom. So, um, then there is... Um, Mudra, yes, I've said a bit about that, about the different gestures of the different Buddhas. And then there is the element. So Amitabha's element is the element of fire. Fire burns up impurities. 
it transforms it transforms the flames that transform samsara into nirvana those are the words we say in the dedication ceremony may the flames that transform samsara into nirvana arise fire gives off light as well as heat and it's the light heat love that radiates from amitabha's heart so i've said it before and i'm going to say it again amitabha exudes and embodies boundless love infinite light but from the deep seat of meditation from meditative absorption so one way that um you could think of amitabha is he has act the activity within stillness the activity of love within stillness and it's a bit of a paradox that um but it's compassion and love coming from a place of stillness rather than overexerting oneself that i must do this i must do good works in the world it needs to come from wisdom otherwise we'll just be a whole load of do gooders so how can we develop these qualities of amitabha it's all very well to sort of look at these beautiful buddhas and reflect upon their qualities that will get us a long way but how do we actually um cultivate the qualities ourselves well the, so the primary quality of um amitabha really is that of metta um and we all you know i'm assuming everybody in this room um you know does or has done and probably will do again the metta bhavana meditation practice um or the other brahma vihara meditations we do the metta bhavana to train the mind to cultivate the boundless heart and sometimes i think in tree ratna we can think of oh um, the metta bhavana is sort of you know a good practice to do you know at the beginning and you teach it to beginners and you maybe do it when you're a mitra and by the time you're ordained well that's a sort of rather secondary practice and you don't do it but interestingly i've just um been reading um uh bantis seminar on the uh, karaniya metta sutta uh which is in the book living with kindness and uh, i was doing this because there just seemed to be a whole lot of events um that i was going on when i was going out to holland they've been doing a whole theme on the metta bhavana and so i was being interviewed on the metta and things and so i sort of was reading that on my way over to holland and then i was at a mitra convenience meeting and we were doing stuff on metta we were doing some study on metta um and just rereading that book again i thought this is a practice that can definitely take you all the way to enlightenment metta the metta bhavana i think is a whole part to insight um so uh the metta bhavana is a really good way for us to train the mind to cultivate the boundless heart um bantu talks about us needing or needing to find emotional equivalence to our intellectual understanding and in the west um many people are very good at their intellectual our intellectual understanding but right from the beginning when bantu founded tri ratna um in the west um he felt that we needed to have something like the metta bhavana practice um otherwise he thought that the dharma that we practiced would become dry and disconnected 
And this is certainly how he obviously had found Buddhists when he came to the West, as well as how he'd found many Buddhists practicing in the East. So he taught the Metabhavana right from the beginning of setting up our movement. <clears throat> the Buddha taught Metta. He taught the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Um, and uh, I'm going to just read now a rendering of the Karaniya Metta Sutta, which was written by Ratnaprabha, was a translation that was written by Ratnaprabha, who was once the chairman of the Cambridge Buddhist Centre and now is in West London. <clears throat> if you know what is truly good for you, and understand the possibility of reaching a state of perfect peace, then this is how you you need to live. Start as a capable person who is upright, really upright, gently spoken, flexible and not conceited. Then become contented and happy with few worries and an uncomplicated life. Make sure your sense experience is calm and controlled. Be duly respectful and don't hanker after families or groups. And avoid doing anything unworthy that wiser people would criticize. Then meditate like this. May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings become happy in their heart of hearts. And think of every living thing without exception, the weak and the strong, from the smallest to the largest, whether you can see them or not, living nearby or far away, beings living now or yet to arise. May all beings become happy in their heart of hearts. May no one deceive or look down on anyone, anywhere, for any reason. Whether through feeling angry or through reacting to someone else, may no one want another to suffer. As strongly as a mother, perhaps risking her life, cherishes her child, her only child, develop an unlimited heart for all beings. Develop an unlimited heart of friendliness for the entire universe, sending metta above, below, and all around, beyond all narrowness, beyond all rivalry, beyond all hatred. Whether you are staying in one place or traveling, sitting down or in bed, in all your waking hours, rest in this mindfulness which is known as like living in heaven right here and now. In this way, you will come to let go of views, be spontaneously ethical and have perfect insight, and leave, leaving behind craving for sense pleasures from the rounds of rebirth, you will finally be completely free. So in a way, that is just what the Buddha is saying. We start off on really quite a, 
a very grounded level of just being sort of fully human and then sort of build that meta up or allow it to radiate out until it comes to those, you know, last lines. In this way we can let go of all views, be spontaneously ethical, spontaneously ethical. We don't even have to think about ethics, we just are ethics and have perfect insight and ultimately, eventually, be completely free, so completely enlightened. So that liberation of heart, um, of um, that, that liberation of the heart, ultimately, is the Mahamaitri, the great metta of Amitabha. And it is sort of from the, you could say from the sort of ecstatic heights of metta, right down to really grounded earthiness, spontaneous and natural. It sort of raises up those two. And if you've read the book, Living with Kindness, I really felt in the last two chapters that Dante kind of somehow goes between these two levels of metta on a very day-to-day, um, mundane, in inverted commas, sort of level, right up to the highest ecstatic heights, and comes down again. So it's not going off into some realms of fantasy, no, all this woo-woo-woo love, you know, without being totally grounded in our everyday life. So metta is both a practice and a state of being where we can come out of our sort of self-absorptions and our own neurosis, our own self-interests all the time and connect with life around us. And I think that's where we have to start from with metta, connecting with life around us. Um, Metta is about identifying with the human condition, the human predicament, as it's sometimes called. Human beings, we're born, we live, we get old age, we, we, we get ill, we become old and we die. And that is the same for all of us. And some of us have better ones, better sort of innings than others, but it's the same for all of us. So it's identifying that with others. We all have this life, the human life. So um, it's identifying the human condition and imaginatively putting ourselves in other people's shoes with their joys, their pains and their sorrows. That's what metta is. Um, I was, last time, not not the very last time I was in Holland, but the time before when I was there, um, I was interviewed by Arthur Mitra, who many of you will know, at the Buddhist Centre. And he was, um, well, it was just a general interview about my life and practice. And one of the things we sort of ended on with, well, sort of, you know, what was my main practice? And, um, you know, I I came up with actually just being a little bit kinder. And um, he sort of said, oh, that's quite modest. And I thought about it afterwards. And this time when I went back to Holland, he obviously wanted to sort of draw that out rather more. And uh, um, it is actually, it's sort of the starting point and it's the end point in a way. Because I think that kind of kindness, if I can't practice it in my everyday life, um, you know, what's the spiritual life all about? At the same time, I think it has to have that vision of something which has got a transcendent quality in it as well. So it does have to be sort of much more aligned with Amitabha as well as in my sort of daily living. Um, We all have the basis of metta. Everybody, all humanity has it, Um, even though it might be very covered up for some. 
and it's as though um, we, you know, we all have friendly feelings. We have the seed of meta, and it's as though those friendly feelings are sort of waiting to develop if we have the right conditions. And then, of course, the last stage of the metabhavna, uh, we're attempting to develop a sort of care and concern, not just for our pals, not just for ourselves, but for all equally and without reservation. And this is a hugely tall order. Um, and that's on and off the cushion. Um, so it's a huge, uh, it's a really tall order, and yet I feel it's kind of essential aspect of the spiritual life. Um, and I suppose that fifth stage, you know, if one really could say there is, you know, I feel no more kind of meta to, for me, to you, to him, to her, to somebody out there, you know, if it was sort of equal meta throughout, that really is where meta becomes akin to insight. Um, and I think that's why, and you really get that reading that book, um, um, that meta really is a complete path to insight. Um, because ultimately it transcends the subject-object duality, um, the separateness that we make amongst ourselves. It transcends that. As love expands, so our consciousness expands. And as co- our consciousness expands, or our awareness expands, so does our empathy for others. And that is where I see it also as very much as a path to insight. So going beyond the self, seeing the illusion of self, and there's a lot of talk about this in Tri Ratna these days, um, going beyond the illusion self, um, the illusion of self, we are moving into the realm of Amitabha. I'm going to read a few lines from a poem by Lama Govinda to Amitabha. Give me the strength to burst the sheath of selfhood and like the seed that dies in order to be reborn let me fearlessly go through the portals of death so that I may awaken to the greater life the all-embracing life of thy love the all-embracing love of thy wisdom Amitabha Mahamaitri So I'm going to end with a little, I want to say a little bit more about um, sort of visualizing Buddhas. Um, and then um, a couple of words about the mantra, Amitabha's mantra. And then I'd like us to end this bit of the evening by chanting the mantra. So rather than sort of, I know you usually clap. I mean, of course, you might not have clapped, but if you were going to clap, don't clap. Don't clap. Um, and I'll just, I'll just start the mantra at the end, and we'll just sort of let that run, just the simple mantra. Um, just let that run for a little bit and then have the tea bit. But going back to sort of returning to the image of Amitabha. So for us to visualize, we need to enlist the more inner faculty of the imagination. 
just sort of let the imagination come. If you remember right at the beginning of this talk, I sort of got us to imagine a time when you were sort of seeing the sunset. We can imagine, I imagine you all had a moment, whether it was actual, actually visual or whether you were just sort of getting a sense or a memory of a time when you were watching the sun setting, the deep red sun. So we can visualize. Um, the Buddhas, are, um, you know, I mentioned this before, the Buddhas are not just sort of reproductions of our sensuous world. They belong to other worlds, you could say. They're much more subtle, they're much more refined, delicate, translucent. They're more, um, it's more as if a world is made up of rainbows rather than solid matter. And each figure, each figure of these five jinnas and all the um, archetypal forms um, is self-luminous. So it's illuminated from within. It's not like having the light shone on it and then you see it. It, it, it illuminates from within. Um, <clears throat> there are no shadows. They don't cast any shadows. Um, there's a depth of luminosity and yet without solidity or rigidity that we have of ordinary objects. And the Buddhas appear within a vibrant blue sky, the realm of truth. And through reflecting on the image with all his various attributes, we can catch the spirit of whichever particular Buddha we are reflecting on, or the Bodhisattva. So in this case, um, we can catch the spirit of Amitabha by dwelling on his form, on his color, on his various attributes. And we can let them, we can allow them to permeate our beings. So when we come to chanting the mantra, um, maybe you can just sort of, you just feel like it, just close your eyes and just see if you can get an image of, at least get the redness there. So Amitabha's mantra is Om Amideva Hri. And with any mantras, it's not just, it's not just sort of singing a mantra. It's very much getting a sense of a resonance within. Um, again, Govinda, if you want to sort of look this up in um, uh, Lama Govinda's um, books, he talks a lot about mantra and uh, hearing from within. Um, so it's sort of chanted with the heart as much as with the voice. And the, the mantra itself doesn't possess any power, but the, but the inner resonance can have power. So, we'll end with the mantra and the ruby redness of Amitabha sitting in the western quarter of the mandala.
We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 